You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would, please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 12. We are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Verse by verse, we have come to the 12th chapter and this morning to the 15th verse. But to hear this section in its context, I want us to begin reading at verse 9, and we will read to verse 21, Matthew chapter 12. And we read beginning with the ninth verse. The Bible says, And departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. Verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to make him known in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. And a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing this morning. Lord, when we worship you in song as we have this morning, when we hear testimonies from the baptistry, when we reflect upon our own lives, We're very much aware of your grace. How do you explain us except for the grace of God? How do you explain a people who have been forgiven of all their sins, who accepted this very moment completely in the Beloved? How do we explain a people who love you and desire to sing praises to you, whose hearts have been transformed from self-centered lives to a desire for God-pleasing in our lives. Lord, how do we explain such a people? It is your grace. And then we think about who we are compared to who we want to be, who we are compared to what we one day will be, and we are far short in every way of what we will be one day. How do we explain your patience with such a people? How do we explain your kindness and goodness and your ongoing work in each of our lives It is your grace. And then we are mindful that sitting in this room now and hearing me in other places, there are people who have yet to be reconciled to you who are still in their sins, who don't know your Son, who are in need of salvation. What is their hope, Lord? It is your grace. And so today, in the grace of God, we gather to hear you, to hear your Word, to receive it. And we ask that your mighty grace would be so evident in this next hour that you would be at work helping the preacher and helping the listener so that eternal good is the result of this next hour. Your people are edified and the lost come face to face with the good news of your Son, and we ask that you would save. We pray for all of these things. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Shepherd and King, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus of Nazareth was not what they expected. In almost every way, Jesus was not what the common Jewish person expected when they thought about 
the coming of the Messiah. There were many who expected that the Messiah would deliver them immediately from the rule of the Romans. Jesus was not doing that. There were many who expected that He would affirm, the Messiah would come and affirm their religious activity, affirm, be pleased with their religious leaders, affirm their traditions. Jesus was not doing that. There are many who thought that the Messiah, when He came, would gather to Himself for the purpose of leadership roles, those who were already highly thought of, those who were thought of as wise and influential and holy. Jesus was not doing that. In every way, He was different. They met with someone who wasn't the product of their religious educational processes. We could say today, He didn't come from their seminaries. He wasn't trained by their highly thought of teachers. John 7.15 says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They met with a common man from the vantage point of humanity, a carpenter's son. You remember they were amazed at him in his own hometown. He was teaching in Nazareth. Matthew 13, 53, And when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there. And coming to His hometown, He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. They met with someone who, instead of gathering in the rich and the influential and the powerful and the holy from their vantage point and the wise from their vantage point, instead, if you looked at the, the leadership team that Jesus put around him, they were commoners. Worse, some of them were outcasts. Jesus sat down to dinner with sinners. Jesus seemed more interested in correcting their religious leaders than the Roman authorities. In almost every way, He was not what they expected. And all of that could have been easily dismissed by the religious leaders of the Jews except for one major problem, the miracles. What do we do with the miracles? They could have easily said, He is not the Messiah. Any claim that He is is false, except no one ever spoke like this man speaks. And no one has ever done, not since the beginning of the world, has anyone done the things that this man has done. Any honest assessment of Jesus of Nazareth could not dismiss His words and could not dismiss His deeds. There were amazing prophecies given about him when he was born in public places, the temple. When he was 12 years old, he's amazing the teachers in the temple with his wisdom. Luke chapter 2 tells us about this. And then the forerunner, a man that everyone regarded to be a prophet, John the Baptist, shows up and he points to Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, at one point he's as clear as you can be, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then as Jesus began to preach and as He began to perform these signs, He was constantly pointing people back to the Scriptures. This is to fulfill what the Scriptures said the Messiah would do. So you have the witness of the Word of God. But with all of that, He still at times behaved in ways that even to the most desiring of His followers, I mean, they say, we do believe He's the Messiah. We're waiting for Him to do what we expect Him to do. Even to those people, at times, the behavior of Jesus just didn't seem to add up. How do we make sense of this? It's unexpected. It's not what we thought it would be. And what Matthew does for us in the text we have before us this morning, verses 15 through 21, is he takes 
some of this strange behavior of Jesus, and he ties it to the Word of God, and he tells us, if you knew the Scriptures, this is what you would have expected. What is unexpected for you is not unexpected from the perspective of Holy Scripture. This is exactly what the Bible said the Messiah would be about. And so this morning we're going to be thinking about a sovereign servant. A sovereign servant. When you think about the Messiah biblically, you're not just thinking about a son of David who is also David's Lord. That is the Son of God. You're not just thinking about a king, the king of Israel and the king of the world. If you take the whole biblical picture, all that the Bible presented about the Messiah who was to come, you have to include the passages that deal with a suffering servant. The one who is sovereign was from all eternity also chosen to be a servant in order to save his people from their sins. Matthew reminds us of the suffering servant, which explains why Jesus behaves in some of the ways that he behaves. We'll get these verses this morning under three headings. I'll just mention them as we come to them. First of all, we see a sovereign withdrawal, a sovereign withdrawal. Verse 15, but Jesus aware of this, aware of what? Well, just go back to the 14th verse where it says, but going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. They're making plans to destroy Jesus. And our Lord is aware of this. And so what does he do? He withdraws. He relocates. Then he followed him and he healed them all. Verse 15 goes on to say, by the way, that last part of verse 15 is very important because it demonstrates that the withdrawal of Jesus is not weakness. It's not fear. It's not cowardice. He is just as powerful as he is relocating, as the power that was on display when they wanted to kill him for what they couldn't control. He, he healed a man on the Sabbath. He is attacking their misguided, unbiblical views of the Sabbath. They hate him for it. He withdraws from there, but as he is withdrawing, that very same power is still on display. His people are following him and he's healing everybody who comes to him. What does that say? It says that his withdrawal is not due to any lack of strength. That's not how you explain it. In fact, the same power that was eradicating disease and ailments throughout Palestine, that very same power could have destroyed all of his enemies in a moment, if that's what had been the plan of God. Jesus says this, Matthew 26, 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. This is when Jesus is arrested in the garden. Verse 51, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Peter takes out the sword, cuts off the ear of Malchus. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Do you not know that at the very moment when the Pharisees are planning to destroy Jesus, if it had been the plan of God, at that very moment all the Pharisees could have been destroyed with a word? The same power that explains the eradication of disease throughout Palestine could have destroyed all of them. Just a word. Jesus doesn't lack strength. He doesn't lack power. The very way that He withdraws, healing all those who come to Him, make that clear. So why then does He withdraw? This is a pattern you see during the earthly ministry of Jesus, that as the opposition rises, as it 
reaches a fever pitch as they are ready to kill him, on more than one occasion, Jesus will relocate and go on with ministry. He never ceases ministry. He relocates and goes on with his ministry. Why does he do it? Matthew 4.12, for example, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Matthew 14.13, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to, de- to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. This is when he heard that John had been beheaded. He relocates. Matthew 15, 21, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is after an encounter with the Pharisees. Disciples come to Jesus. They say to him, did you know the Pharisees were offended? Jesus relocates to a different area to carry on ministry. Even when the fever pitch is positive in nature, each of those examples could have been people seeking his life earlier than was designed by God when he would die on the cross, even when there was a positive sense of the force wanting to center in on Jesus, even then you see this. John 6, verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why? Why this de-escalation that occurs again and again? Well, John 7, verse 8 Our Lord tells us why. He says, you go up to the feast. His brother's wanting him to go up to the feast. If you're the the Messiah, why don't you just go make it public? He says, you go up. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. The relocation, the escalation is not about fear. It's not about lack of strength. It's about timing. It's about sovereign timing. That's why I said this is a sovereign withdrawal. It's just not yet time for this kind of conflict, and so he withdraws. And by the way, there's a lesson in that even for us today. There are hills worth dying on, and there are times to de-escalate the situation for the sake of ongoing ministry. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. We're not thinking rightly if we think that every hill is the hill to die on so that we actually jeopardize future ministry when when a calmer demeanor and a calmer response would both honor God and allow for future ministry and would not be compromising. We're not talking about compromising the truth. We're not talking about decisions made out of fear or cowardice. We're not talking about anything like that. We're talking about wisdom. And here is the Son of God proving Himself to be perfectly wise. When He hears that they are going to seek His life, verse 15, aware of that, He withdrew from there. And many followed Him. By the way, this this makes clear, doesn't it? It's not like He's hiding out. This is not movement to some secret location because where he is, people know that he is. It's just a de-escalation. And so people follow him to this new location and once again the signs are present as all these people who seek him find their help and he heals them. So a sovereign withdrawal. Second thing I want you to see, a sovereign silence. Verse 16, and warned them not to make him known. You see this this sovereign choice about, about timing being made, not just with respect to location, but also with respect to communication. Once again, if you think about de-escalation, our Lord would do this by telling the people He would heal, don't trumpet this. I don't want you to go out and to, to declare who I am to the world, given what I've just done for you. Thank God, worship God, be grateful to God. But don't trumpet this information everywhere. Why? Why would you want this, Jesus? Once again, for the purpose of de-escalation. It's just not His time. Now, someone could ask the question, if God is sovereign over everything, and He is, if the death of Jesus on the cross is going to take place at precisely the right time, what does it matter whether things escalate or not? I mean... 
In fact, there were times, and you see this in the life of Jesus, where they were ready to take him and hurt him, and he passes out of their midst. I mean, the, the Lord's power is on display even in ways that Jesus escaped intense situations. If God is sovereign over everything, then why avoid the conflict? Why do you re relocate? Why do you give commands about communication? If God's sovereign, does it matter? And once again, we're reminded that, that while God is sovereign over everything, He works His sovereign plans out in a way that's not deterministic. He doesn't make us robots, puppets. Men are still thinking. They're still choosing. They are still talking to each other. They still make plans such as the Pharisees did to destroy Him. God's, this, this is not a case where God's sovereignty is being denied. This is a case where God's sovereignty is being worked out. His sovereign plans are being worked out in a way where human beings are not robotic. They're still operating in the kind of liberty that belongs to our being, but yet God's will is done. So it's a mystery. We have to admit that. It's a mystery, but you see it on display even in our Lord because He is sovereign, His Father is sovereign, yet He's making decisions, strategic decisions, to de-escalate situations because the timing is not right. So this is sort of strange, isn't it? I mean, if, if the Messiah comes to usher in a kingdom and you reach what looks like, from a human vantage point, this intense opportunity, not just for conflict, but for victory. I mean, come on, Jesus, just usher in the kingdom. This was a part of the Baptist struggle. Remember when he sends messengers to Jesus to say, are you the one or should we look for another? It's like, this isn't happening the way I envisioned it. Why are you taking a step back? Why are you relocating? Why are you commanding silence? None of this seems to make sense to me as I think about you ushering in a kingdom. How do you make sense of it? Well, the third thing we see, we'll spend the bulk of our time, a sovereign withdrawal, a sovereign silence. How do you explain it? Third, we see a scriptural significance. Matthew says, let's go to the Bible. If you want to understand this, he warned them not to make him known. He relocates, verse 15. He commands silence, verse 16, verse 17, in order that. Why is he doing this? In order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled. He's not what you expect, but that's your problem. Because the Bible prepared you for this. He's exactly what the Scripture said He would be. What was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, verse 18, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The Bible prepares us for a Messiah who will bring justice to its end in a way that shows compassion for sinners. And His compassion is on display not just by what He does for sinners, thinking now about the cross, but how He deals with sinners. His demeanor, His manner, His life. The Bible prepared God's people, if they were willing to hear it, willing to see it. The Bible prepared God's people to meet with a gentle conqueror in His first coming. We've talked about it before. This is where the Jewish people really struggle. You have, you have the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, both presented in the Old Testament. But if you read those two comings as one, it would be confusing. And what they struggled to, to know, because it was a mystery, was this time gap in between that you and I are living in right now called the church age. 
And so if you look carefully at the Old Testament, you see the first coming of Christ, how it's presented, the second coming of Christ, which is very different. But if you mesh the two in your mind, what the people tended to make preeminent in their thinking was the second coming of the Messiah, where he ushers in the kingdom in a way that wipes out all of their enemies and all the rest. And, and so they're wondering, why isn't this happening? Well, Matthew points us to something that has to do with the first coming of the Messiah. And you see it in Isaiah 42. It was read in our scripture reading. You see it in verses 1 through 4, which is what Matthew is quoting here, probably giving us his own translation of those the Hebrew scriptures. He, he tells us what Isaiah has already said. And what he tells us, you can, you can break down into four parts. Who is the Messiah? What will he do? How will he serve? What will he accomplish? What is his character? What is his activity? What is his manner? And what will he accomplish? Notice, first of all, his character, verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Let's stop there. Who is he? First of all, he's a glorious redeemer. It's glorious. Behold my servant. Look at him. See him. Take note of him. This is what the Spirit of God was saying through Isaiah. This is what Matthew is writing. The Spirit of God is saying through Matthew, look at him. What you see is amazing, glorious, unexpected, because he's gracious. The one who's coming will not just be judge and ruler, he will be savior. Which is why the next words say, my servant. He comes as a suffering servant. Do you see him? Do you recognize him when you see him? Are you surprised or does it confirm in your mind what Scripture has prepared you for? Look at him. He's a glorious Redeemer. He's a chosen servant. My servant whom I have chosen. He comes to accomplish a purpose and God made a choice in His eternal counsels that the eternal Son will take to Himself an additional sinless human nature to conquer as far as the curse is known, to deliver, to rescue, to reclaim, to save. He is a servant then by divine choice, which means by His own choice because He is God. One God, three persons, and in the eternal counsels of that one God, the eternal Son would be born of a virgin into the world and save human beings by His own life and death and resurrection. He is the chosen one to be the Savior of the world, which means that He voluntarily came in complete accord with the one divine will. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And it should amaze you, church, to know that he made a choice that would not just mean an additional nature for a time, but an additional nature for forever. Even now in the heavens, your Savior, who is the eternal Son of God, is the God-man still as human as you and I are. Because while the divine nature had no beginning, His human nature had a beginning in time as He was conceived in His mother's womb by the Spirit of God. A chosen servant. His divinity is seen in the next statement, My beloved. He is a beloved son. He is Yahweh's beloved in a way that, that none of us can claim. 
We are now sons and daughters of God by salvation. We are sons and daughters of God by adoption. But Jesus is the one and only Son of God who has always been the Son of God and from all eternity the beloved of the Father. In the one God who is three persons, there has always been fellowship and relationship. You and I were made in the image of God. Man was formed in the image of God and formed with the capacity for relationship and fellowship. And in that way, we bear God's image so that there was love in the Godhead from all eternity. And this one who has come to the earth, who stands before these Pharisees, is Yahweh's beloved. It is the Father's Son. And He is His Father's pleasure. My beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. In whom my soul is well pleased. And His Father has made clear that this is His Son and this is His pleasure. On more than one, one occasion and in more than one way. Remember when Jesus was baptized, Matthew 3, 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. At His transfiguration, which was a preview of future kingdom glory, the testimony is heard again. Matthew 17, verse 5, He, he was still speaking when behold, remember the disciples said, let's, let's make three booths here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Right? Singular glory. Not to be shared with another. We listen to Him. And our Lord made clear that at every moment of His life, in every situation, in every decision, in every word that He spoke, in everything that He ever did, He did nothing but please His Father. John 8, 29, Jesus said, And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So what does Isaiah tell us and what does Matthew remind us of? He reminds us of who the Messiah is. What is His character? He is a glorious Redeemer. Behold Him. He is a chosen servant. Came into the world with a mission to accomplish, a mission established in God from all eternity. The Son of God, the eternal Son chosen for this purpose, willingly embraces that, takes to Himself an additional nature to be our Savior. He is God's beloved Son. He is His Father's pleasure and does nothing but pleases His Father. What is His activity? He lives His life in the power of the Spirit of God. He conducts His ministry in the power of the Spirit of God. Verse 18, I will put My Spirit upon Him. Again, you and I were given the Spirit of God when we were saved. This is a new covenant reality, the, the indwelling of the Spirit of God in the lives of the people of God, but none of us has the Spirit of God in the same way the Son of God knew the Spirit of God. He was the Lord's anointed. Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden. When describing the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts, they, they preach Him in a way that, that describes this unique relationship to the Spirit of God in terms of anointing. Acts 10, 38, You know of Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Or John 3.34, which says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. I want to read to you a bit of an extended quote from John MacArthur. I thought he did a good job describing this, explaining this. Listen to what he says. He says, yet if Jesus was the preexistent Son, eternally one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, in what way could the Spirit have come upon Him during His humanity? First of all, the coming of the Spirit upon Jesus was a bestowing of power to His human nature. His divine nature was already one with the Spirit and did not require special assistance, but His human nature did. Jesus was fully human, even to the point of being tempted in the same ways every human being is, yet without sinning, Hebrews 4.15. 
As a child, he grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man, Luke 2.52. He had human feelings and human emotions. He was hungry and thirsty, and he became tired and felt pain and sorrow. His humanness received the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in order for it to function in concert with his deity. Therefore, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, Acts 10.38. Second, Jesus required the anointing of the Spirit in order to attest to his royal service as the Messiah. For 30 years he had lived in obscurity, but when his ministry began, he was given a special attestation of authority and approval by the Father. A prophecy of the Messiah was quoted by Jesus and applied to himself as he taught in the synagogue at Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Luke 4, 18 and 19. After he sat down, Jesus explained, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. As the perfect submissive servant, Jesus functioned not only in the Father's will and by the Father's commendation, but in the power of the Father's Spirit. Close quote. What will he do? He will live, he will minister in the power of the Spirit of God in a way unique to the Messiah. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, into verse 18. He proclaims judgment. He proclaims the judgment of God, what is right, what is just, what is righteous. And as he does this, he takes the nations into account. He has not come to proclaim truth and justice just to Jews. He has come to proclaim truth and justice to the world. The Gentiles are in mind as God sends the Savior, the Savior, the only Savior of mankind into the world. As God sends the Savior into the world, the whole world is before his mind so that Christ walks in Trinitarian witness. The Father witnesses to him. The Spirit witnesses to him. He points to the Scriptures himself to point people to who he is. He walks in divine power. He is the preeminent preacher. He is the hope of the world. He is the great evangelist as he points the whole world to himself for the forgiveness of their sins. How will he serve? He does what he does by the power of the Spirit. He does what he does to establish justice, to to, to proclaim justice to the whole world. What is his manner as he does this? Verse 19, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. How will he do this? He does it with tranquility. That's what verse 19 describes. Not quarreling, not crying out. His voice not being heard in the streets. What the Spirit of God is saying through Isaiah and what Matthew is saying, this doesn't mean that he won't speak truth. Doesn't mean that he won't challenge the lies that damn people. We see Jesus doing that. Doesn't mean that he won't meet with conflict. He meets with constant conflict. What it means is what will characterize the Messiah is not some loud, boastful, pugilistic kind of character. He meets with a fight, but he's not the cause of it in the sense of desiring it. What he desires is repentance. What he desires is salvation. He's not a worldly leader. Worldly leaders are characterized by fighting, loudness, boastfulness. This is the character of the great ones of the world, lost humanity, but not the Messiah. He's the Prince of Peace. His ministry comes with tranquility. Why are you withdrawing? Why are you de-escalating? Why are you waiting for just the right time? Because, Because this is who He is. This is how He operates, and this is what the Bible prepared us to recognize. Say it another way, he does what he does with gentleness, verse 20. Gentleness. A battered reed he will not break off. And a smoldering wick he will not put out. Can I just say as a quick side note, you know what? The more we become like Jesus, this is more and more of what our ministry should look like. Are we not living right now in a clamorous world? 
Everyone is constantly fighting. And I'm afraid with good motives, but a bad mind on this particular point, I think there are people who think that that courage for Jesus' sake and faithfulness to Jesus means we take on this warring posture and this is how we're faithful to the Son of God. Now listen, you'll be faithful to the Son of God as you're conformed to the image of the Son of God. When you hold God's truth in hand and when you proclaim it to the world, you will not have to go looking for a fight. And with tranquility and gentleness, you'll still meet with conflict. But we're not brawlers, beloved. We're truth speakers. And so our Lord's gen- and we're people full of love and compassion for other people. We recognize the mercy God has had upon us. What is the need of the world? Salvation. What will make the difference for the world? The grace of God, the mercy of God. This is the need. And so we're not like the sons of thunder who want to call down fire from heaven and devour the whole thing. Though one day when God judges the earth with fire, it will be just and He'll be glorified in that justice. Until He chooses to do that, remembering that vengeance belongs to Him. We are men and women who desire to see people reconciled to God. That's the ministry that's been entrusted to us, the ministry of reconciliation. Do you hear that? He didn't say, and you've been entrusted with the ministry of alienation. Now go out and alienate as many people as you can. You and I have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. But it's not a false peace. It doesn't exist on the ground of compromise. It exists on the ground of truth. So for the sake of souls, we tell the truth. For the sake of salvation and deliverance and liberty, we tell the truth. We present Jesus. Yes, it's going to be perceived by a lost and dying world as a cause for war. But that's not our demeanor, nor is it our desire. Our desire is for salvation. And you see that in our Lord's gentleness, verse 20. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Reeds were common in this part of the world. All of them were frail. But if you you got one that hadn't been crushed, you you could make something useful out of it, like a musical instrument, like a flute. But a battered reed, one that had already been crushed, it was worthless. Nobody nobody chose battered reeds for anything. And a wick that didn't function as wicks were meant to function has a hard time keeping a light. It it smolders. It, It just sort of, you know, smolders along. It doesn't give light to anything. Such a wick would have been worthless. And if you ask... What do the reeds represent in this text? What do the wicks represent in this text? The answer is you and me. We were the battered reeds. We were the smoldering wicks. From the standpoint of what we deserved, all we deserved was to be destroyed. But God, seen in the demeanor of His Son, has mercy upon battered reeds and smoldering wicks, and He does a work in us that at the same time imparts to us a sense of value that's explained only by the grace of God. He takes vessels that were worthless by their own nature and rescues them, redeems them, transforms them, changes them so that now they know a sense of worth in the grace of God they would have never known before. When Jesus meets with a battered reed, He doesn't just snap it off. He saves. When he meets with a smoldering wick, he doesn't extinguish it. He causes it to live. Patience, compassion, love, mercy, gentleness. This is what will characterize the suffering servant, the Messiah. And when you meet with that demeanor, you're meeting with the heart of God towards sinners, a willingness to save I wonder, do you know that in your own life? Are you being conformed to the image of your Savior? You look upon a world of sinners dying in their sins. 
and long for their judgment? Or do you long for their salvation? And remember, you've been given the word of reconciliation. And he does this with faithfulness. He does this with faith. tranquility characterizes him. Gentleness characterizes him. Faithfulness characterizes him. End of verse 20, until he leads justice to victory. Until he, lead, until he triumphs. The Gospels tell us that Jesus loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. He loved us all the way to the end of his earthly journey. He lived like this all the way until his time to meet the conflict at the cross arrived. This was his character. This was his demeanor all the way to the cross. In fact, even on that cross, what do you hear? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Faithful. D.A. Carson said, What is pictured is a ministry so gentle and compassionate that the weak are not trampled on and crushed until justice, the full righteousness of God, triumphs. Jesus will die in a way that the world would look at as a failure. This is the stumbling block, isn't it? A crucified Messiah. This is foolishness to the world. A crucified Messiah. But in his dying, he was triumphing. In his dying, he was accomplishing his mission. In his dying, he was winning the victory for us. And that became plain three days later when he was raised from the dead bodily and appeared to over 500 people over a period of 40 days so that those who were grieving because they thought they had lost him were now full of boldness because they knew he lived forever. He has ascended on high. He's enthroned in the heavens. And He's coming again. When He comes again, He won't be coming as the suffering servant. He'll be coming as the Lion of the tribe of Judah who's going to usher in a kingdom where the sheep and the goats are separated out forever. And only righteousness will be present in the world. Do you know Him? Are you ready to meet Him? Have you met Him already? Have you met Him in mercy? Because if you don't meet Jesus in mercy, you're going to meet Him in judgment. What will he accomplish? Verse 21, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. What he will accomplish is the sinner's hope. He will, he will accomplish everything, everything necessary to save people like us. The life you and I can't live, a life that lives up to the law of God, Jesus lived. The death that we deserve to die, meeting with the wrath of God forever, Jesus took upon himself on the cross, there the Father was pleased to crush Him. That you and I would be delivered. And having been raised from the dead, now the good news of salvation in His name goes out to the world, to the nations. And everyone who puts his or her hope in Him finds the promise of the gospel to be true and your sins are pronounced forgiven and His righteousness is put to your accounts. And you stand before God accepted, not because of what you have done, but what Jesus has done for sinners. He won. He conquered. He triumphed. Salvation's door is open so that now His name is the hope for the world. Have you put your faith in Him? Is His name in your mouth and in your heart as Savior and Lord? This is what he's done. So Matthew's answered a very important question for us. Why would the promised king of Israel retreat? Why would the Messiah not lead an uprising? Why will he not be characterized by wrangling and fighting? Why is he not looking to build a following that will usher in a kingdom of this world? This was a mystery to, to the very moment he was being examined by Pilate. John 18, 50, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Majestic, calm, tranquil. Even as he's on his way to die for us. Why? Why is he behaving like this? Because his crown will be worn after a cross. Because the citizens of his kingdom have to be purchased by blood. Because for us to live, he had to die and be raised so that we might live with him forever. If you didn't know it before today, you know it today. He's your only hope. He's your only hope. And the question is, will you, hearing this astounding good news, behold him, will you turn from your sins to trust in his name, give him your life, and be saved? And if he has saved you, do you delight in the one who was the delight to his father? Is your heart full of praise for the suffering servant? He is the Son of God. He is the Son of David. He is the King of kings. He's also the suffering servant. And if he had not been the suffering servant, you would still be in your sins. So give praise to God this day for your King, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the continual presentation of our Savior on the pages of your Holy Word the knowledge of who He is, the knowledge of what He's done, the knowledge of how He did it, the knowledge of what He accomplished, so that every one of us who have hoped in His name find that our hope is not empty. It's sure. We do pray for those who need Your Son this day, Lord. Our hearts do feel compassion for them. We do desire their rescue, their reconciliation. Lord, would You have mercy? Would You save and for those, all of us who have been saved, thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and what you've done. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.